uh, look around. And that's an indication of relationship quality. How much do both people emulate or mimic um, each other's behaviors? It's much easier for a female to adapt her behaviors and mimic her partner's behaviors than it is for a male to adapt uh, his behaviors to the females uh, because females uh, empathize much easier with um, other people. And there's uh, different biological explanations beyond just estrogen levels, such as the insula. The insula uh, inside the brain has more gray matter and more activation for females. And what that does is it takes in more sensory information for the female to analyze about the environment and other people. That's one of the reasons that brings into that women's intuition. So they're sort of like detectives. They can uh, (laughs) detect all these different nuances that we just don't pick up on. Hi, I'm Claudia, and you're listening to The Brain and Brand Show, where you'll hear science and inspiration from guests like neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. Welcome to The Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. And my mission with this show is to help you understand yours and others' brains so that you can communicate and engage with others in an elite way. Whatever your dreams are, whether it's to launch a global business or build a better relationship with your colleague, I hope you leave each episode with elevated insight into how people think, consume, and behave. I'm delighted to bring you a conversation with Dr. Stephen Furlich, the author of Sex Talk. He's an associate professor at Texas A&M University, one of the best schools in the world. And we're going to explore everything from why our biological makeup impacts how men and women see the world differently to how you can determine your communications approach to another person by sizing them up. In this episode, you're going to learn to take a more active role in making sure your messages land the right way and you may even discover how to decide if the person you're with is not the right fit. And if you need to choose someone else with a different biological makeup, buckle up. Dr. Furlich is a walking research encyclopedia. We start the conversation with him explaining how he wrote Sex Talk out of a necessity. Enjoy. Dr. Stephen A. Furlich, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks, Tim, for having me. I'm excited to talk about my book. So you are in Texas at the moment. Where did you grow up and how did you end up teaching at Texas A&M? I grew up in Texas, in uh, Bedford, Texas, which isn't too far away from uh, uh, the DFW airport. My mom was a flight attendant for a number of years, so we always had to live close to a large international airport. And I went to high school there. And then after high school, I went to Texas Tech. And from an early age, I always have been fascinated with uh, human behaviors, uh, psychology, communication, and in particular, the areas of nonverbal communication and gender communication. So when I went to Texas Tech as an undergraduate, I majored in psychology, and that was my uh, primary interest. So one of the things that um, brought me to this book is I've taught over the last several years at Texas A&M and Commerce uh, gender communication class. And the gender communication class, just like I guess the uh, old saying or the cliche goes, um, 
necessity is the mother of all invention. I couldn't find a book for that course that met my needs. So oh, wow. I, I was teaching a class for the last six, seven years. And what I had to do was uh, piece together different scholarly journal articles from different disciplines to make a more cohesive topic of what I wanted. So there's plenty of books out there about gender communication. And those predominantly or uh, just about all of them address gender communication from a social learning perspective, that it's social behaviors, the way that we're brought up in our families, uh, society, um, the groups that we belong to. But I kept seeing in the research recurrent themes over and over, regardless of time frames. These are going back over decades. Uh, different uh, demographics of participants, uh, different areas, uh, locations. So all these same themes keep reoccurring with all these other variables that keep changing. So a light went off my head in epiphany that there's a biological uh, uh, component to it of these uh, consistent gender communication differences between males and females. So uh, just briefly, back in about the year 2000, um, one of our leading scholars in communication studies, McCroskey, uh, he's one of the uh, he's one of those guys who are always on the forefront of the cutting edge of something new, something innovative. And he introduced the term communibiology and he started to study how biology influences communication. And his area was more of speech anxiety and how we're biologically uh, pre disposed to having different levels of anxiety when we speak based upon our individual biological differences. So I springboard from that uh, frame of mind to how our biological sex influences our gender communication differences. That's a fascinating journey getting to this point. And it seems to me from my observation, as well as my own work, that there is no better time to put out this book. I mean, if you look around the world, I mean, I actually think you need to line up all of the politicians around the world <laughs> and, really, and really, you know, set them on a course to be able to communicate better. It's a it's a fascinating time. I, I, I never take the victim mode. I'm always looking at how can I make it easier for someone to understand me? How can I communicate in a way that helps people overcome their biases, help people catapult past some of the blocks that they may have. If I'm on an out group and they're part of an in group, I, I don't expect them to understand. You know, one of my jokes is that if you've never met a person of color who's written four books like me, then it's possible you may put me in a Chris Brown category because uh, you may have met other people who are look like me who are a singer or a rapper or something. Let's talk about why it's important if you're a speaker or a listener to take an active role in helping other people understand you. And I think that's what the key aspect is, active, that you need to be active to understand the other person from their perspective. And I think too often we understand the world from our own lens, our own paradigm, and don't take into consideration uh, where this person is coming from. So, for example, um, one of the chapters I have in my book is about conversational differences between uh, males and females. 
and goes into some of the different biological explanations as to um, understanding and communication differences between males and females. So with uh, the research, and this is something that really um, I was aware of for years, and it was always in the back of my head, um, why is this the case? That females consistently for years and decades in research have been found to be superior with empathy and nonverbal abilities. They understand other people much more accurately than what biological males do. And I go into some of the biological reasons why. Uh, one of the reasons is that they have a more integrated brain. So they have more connections to different areas of the brain across the hemispheres. And this allows her during conversations to engage in the conversation while at the same time access those other areas of her brain to analyze the nonverbal behaviors of the other person. This Another thing that has been found consistently over and over is that females during conversations have higher levels of oxytocin. And that's the bonding chemical. And formally, uh, some people may be familiar with it as a love hormone or chemical. Yeah. And yeah. what that does is um, it helps draw a connection with the other person. But even more importantly, it brings in or it analyzes more sensory information about the other person. So she's able to take in more sensory cues of the other person and understand those. Another thing is that during uh, conversations, she has more of her overall brain activated. So the brain scans actually show more of her overall brain having activation. Whereas with males during conversations, me and you right now, language is activated on the left side and then emotion is activated on the right side. Quick note. Firstly, I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Secondly, to fully appreciate Dr. Furlich's insights, I want you to consider this. Every ounce of success you'll ever experience will come through or with another person. We often underestimate just how important it is to communicate with a person from another sex. Hear me clearly. If you do not appreciate that we are wired different and culturally we are nurtured differently, you will sabotage your own goals and dreams professionally and personally in your own home. Now back to the interview. So taking a lot of these uh, uh, differences into consideration, uh, you need to understand that she's going to understand and look into subtle cues much more so than what males are. So <laughs> you may say something and she may read much deeper than what you would like into what you said beyond just the words. Um, whereas with the male, they have a smaller and a less active hippocampus. And the hippocampus is re uh, responsible for language, emotion, and memory. So therefore, with us, with language activated on the left side and a smaller hippocampus, we could do language or we could do emotion and we could do them okay, but we can't do them both at the same time nearly as well as what females can. So they need to understand, don't expect us to have the same degree or the same level of emotional expression and language uh, abilities as what females do because we just don't have those biological processes in place. Yeah. So just to uh, take that to at the beginning roots, um, uh, uh, females from an early age have been found to have better social abilities and uh, males, boys, um, have uh, less or inferior social abilities compared to girls at earlier age and have more speech and language disorders. 
So when a male communicates, yes. um, it doesn't mean that he's removed or doesn't care if he's not that emotionally expressive, if he just talks about the headlines or the facts. And the females need to understand that. And females need to, uh, and males need to understand when she elaborates and brings in uh, the language, emotion and memory and things from the past that makes sense to her holistically, bringing all these things in together and the emotion. And it's easier for her. And it's not that she's going in a different direction or off topic or whatever else, but tying it all in makes sense to her. So you can see how communicating about the exact same thing can be communicated differently, understood differently between males and females and our abilities different. Yeah. You know, for those listening who are thinking, you know, I know certain type of high testosterone alpha males, and I know males who come across a bit more feminine. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the scale. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, same thing with women. There are women who mm-hmm. just made up slightly different. Let's talk about what is the neurological, biological reason why there are differences in females and differences in males. Okay, so starting out with the sex hormone differences, on average, the adult males have about 20 times uh, more testosterone than what females do. And on average, the adult female has about 20 times uh, more estrogen than what the adult male does. And testosterone is highly related or highly correlated or positively associated with like spatial ability, motion, but has been found that it's negatively associated with language abilities. So higher levels of testosterone hinders uh, language or social abilities. So pre-level or at birth levels of testosterone can a voice can even predict their language abilities later in life, four or five oh, wow. years of age. Uh, estrogen, the reverse has been found that that hinders spatial ability. But it has been found that estrogen helps language and social abilities. And again, um, you can actually track it from early in life and predict later on what those abilities are. So in cases where there are men, you know, there will be a percentage of men who will have more estrogen, a percentage of women who will have more testosterone. Can you explain that a little bit? Okay. And one of the things that I I, uh, think should be stressed is I look at this research on more of a continuum and less so as an absolute um, uh, discrete discrete category. Sure. Sure. So empathy, nonverbal behaviors, uh, conversations, we just talked about that. It's not that one uh, male's uh, do one type and females do a different type, but as to the degree, how much there has been, and this is something of interest that, uh, highlights and stresses the important role of sex hormones themselves, that there's a small number of girls, about, about one in 10,000 who are born with the acronym CAH. And that is, uh, they have much higher levels of testosterone than what average or uh, normal uh, girls do. And they found consistencies with C- those girls with the CAH uh, being in more in the direction closer towards boys than what the average girls are, such, with, uh, such as in language abilities, that the girls with the CAH have inferior language abilities, uh, social abilities, 
compared to uh, girls who don't have those higher levels of testosterone. And also with spatial abilities, that girls born with that CAH and the higher levels of testosterone um, have better spatial abilities than what girls who are not born with that condition do. And uh, these translate into social behaviors where girls are more likely to have similar types of hobbies or hobbies closer to what normal or typical average boys do with more of the rough house types of behaviors, playing with trains, cars, yep. things like that. And later in life, those girls with the CEH with higher levels of testosterone go into careers that are more male dominated, more similar as well. So the consistent theme throughout all that is sex hormones, influence and interest, social behaviors, and even career choices as well. So is there any correlation between a lot of these teens, uh, young people coming out saying that they don't feel comfortable in their gender identity, their assigned gender identity? Has any studies been done on CAH and gender fluidity, trans? No, not enough. So it's still a new emergent type of area. And I don't think there's enough out there right now to uh, make conclusions about uh, the linkage or the association between sex hormone levels and those types of uh, areas or topics. So, okay. And I think that's a, that's a uh, caution, you know, we need to know um, more about those uh, particular areas and uh, uh, what is uh, supported by science and what are the risks involved and other things as well. It's just too new. Um, With my book, I cite over uh, 700 different uh, research articles and studies, and that goes into, you know, each article, each research study has a certain number of participants. So you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of participants that are covered throughout my book that have consistent themes of outcomes. So uh, we need to have a large enough sample size, which we do not yet for those types of studies and those uh, types of uh, populations. Let's talk about how our hormones, for example, you look at a 10-year-old and an 80-year-old. A 10-year-old and an 80-year-old aren't as interested in signaling sex because they're not in their sort of fertility window. If someone you're communicating to on your team is a, you know, a 22-year-old right out of school versus someone who is a senior, 65-year-old still working, what is the fundamental difference between how you could think about how they, you would communicate to them based on their hormonal makeup at those different ages? And that's one of the things to take into consideration is what's the role of sex hormones? How do they change throughout someone's uh, different life cycle? Yes. So um Males, usually around early 20s or so, their testosterone tends to peak. And then for females, their estrogen tends to peak uh, a little bit later than that. So, again, uh, going back to that um, higher levels of testosterone tends to hinder language or social abilities. And the higher levels of estrogen tends to help um, language or social abilities. Also with uh, emotions as well that uh, hormone levels can influence uh, emotional uh, emotion, how people feel emotion differences, uh, even between males and females. That's through uh, different types of hormonal changes for females, 
uh, there's a high correlation with depression as well. And that the um, serotonin system, which serotonin is used for mood uh, stabilization or mood regulation, has been recognized for over 40 years. And this, this should be more well known throughout academia as being sexually dimorphic. So the system itself within us that regulates our moods is different, has been recognized by science differently between males and females for over 40 years. And depression has even been um, linked to the X chromosome. Okay. So you have all these different factors that come into play between males and females biologically and even how their emotions um, uh, are regulated differently. Just one uh, quick uh, uh, fact or tidbit that the majority of divorces that are filed by people over age 50 are filed by uh, women. And that's usually around when menopause uh, kicks in and those estrogen levels uh, dramatically decrease, which is usually related with uh, relationships and social abilities. So maybe that plays into a factor of the higher levels. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if you've come across people you've known where, you know, they're married for 20 or 30 years. And then all of a sudden there's a divorce and you find out a lot of times that the woman filed for the divorce. So maybe there is yeah. some association between the sex hormone levels of estrogen dropping during menopause and, you know, uh, re- relationship uh, termination. Yeah. You know, these things, why do you think these are such uncomfortable topics? Is there a certain ideology that a 25-year-old and a 60-year-old should be feeling and thinking the same things? Why are we so uncomfortable with the simple, raw fact that a 22-year-old, a 50-year-old, and a 70-year-old are feeling and thinking and interpreting things differently? I think that's a good point, um, what you just made. The uncomfortableness of it, um, part of it is, um, I'll just throw this out here somewhere as a lighthearted joke. People don't want to get canceled. <laughs> so uh, grouping people together, um, you know, instead of looking at them as, uh, as much as individuals, that may be part of it. But another part of it is, and this is where, what I address in Chapter two, I think it is, uh, the research of gender communication that uh, Deborah Tannen back in the 1990s came out with a book. Yes, males and females communicate differently, but um, it could all be explained through society and the way that we're raised this there and the other. So I think uh, that has been set forth that momentum. Um, in academia, in society, to let's just hurry up and scramble and look for some sort of social explanation uh, as to why there may be differences as, as opposed to biological differences. That's part of it. And also, um, I'm trying to think of the social polite way to say this, um, not as much academically inclined to do the necessary difficult hard work that uh, needs to be put forth to go through the science, to go through uh, um, all these different areas that you may not be as familiar with. Nobody, I don't think there's anybody around who is uh, familiar with everything uh, inside my entire book. I wasn't either when I put it together. So it's a multidisciplinary approach and there isn't just one discipline that uh, covers all of it. You know, I want to get into a few more controversial topics like, you know, when I know of some people who have been very open to me about 
when their hormones are raging and they're in highly they're in highly aroused periods, they start they struggle to focus, mm-hmm. they struggle to work with the opposite uh, sex, and they struggle to engage because you know the the intensity of the hormones. And I think everybody, if they're honest with themselves, can admit we all go through those periods at some point. Could you explain that? What's happening in our bodies in those moments? And if you're engaging someone like this in a, on a team or you can see their behavior starting to be a little bit erratic or et cetera, how to engage and how to think about dealing with this? And that's one of the major themes of my book is that uh, you can't separate the two that your biology influences your psychology and your psychology influences your biology, that all communication starts in the brain and your sex hormones influence those brain activations and functions, that even hormonal uh, changes can change the synapses, the activations in your brain. They could change, you know, the structures in your brain and it could change uh, the way that it functions as well. So one of the things that you just talked about, how do you maybe get into more control of uh, the situation or the state if your sex hormone levels are influencing your behaviors? One thing that uh, has been found to be successful is um, uh, mimic behaviors. So if you mimic the behaviors of the other person, that activates Brain scans have shown this, that activates the same areas of your brain that's activating their brain just by mimicking the same behaviors. And what does that do? That helps you better empathize with the other person. That helps you better understand the other person. Another couldn't thing- that also, sorry, Stephen, couldn't that okay. also work in the up, opposite way as well? If that person is really turned on and you couldn't you find yourself being turned on by triggering the mirror neurons? And, and, and create an effect that you're not hoping to have? Yes. You would hope that it would go the other way, that you would uh, display more positive behaviors and they would uh, help to adopt to that. Uh, in that situation, if you find yourself in it, nonverbal communication has consistently found that it goes both ways. Your nonverbal behaviors are not only a reflection of your emotions, but your nonverbal behaviors can create the emotion. So whatever nonverbal behaviors you display um, eventually uh, leads to feeling those types of emotions that you're displaying. So if you're in a bad mood, simply by smiling, that puts you in a better mood. There was a study done. They had two different conditions. They had one condition where people uh, um, uh, sat there with normal facial expressions. And then with the other condition, they had uh, people sit there and they put a pen in their mouths. Okay, and they found out that in the second condition, condition B, with the pin in their mouth, that they rated their emotions as much more positive and much happier. Why is that? Because that emulates or that simulates a smile. So just having a pin in their mouth, having that physical type of uh, emulation of a smile changed their emotions just by that simple uh, type of uh, behavior. So your nonverbal behaviors being more open. Uh, smiling more, um, be more uh, facially expressive can change your emotional uh, tendencies at that time. Um, If it's face-to-face, a light touch can increase your oxytocin levels and have a better bond with the other person. Got it. Uh, Let's talk to females. Females experience a lot of harassment in the workplace. There's a lot of guys who can't really get control of their hormones. 
if you're in an environment like this, how do you sort of reduce, um, you know, outside of, because sometimes things, there are, there are nuanced behaviors that you can't really put your finger on. So you can't just run straight to the HR and say, I've been harassed. Sometimes it's more subtle. How do you reduce those subtleties to reduce harassment? Probably there's a number of things. One is to educate people about maybe uh, the males don't even realize how it comes across or what they're even doing and to bring their attention to it. Hey, this is how it's being perceived or understood. So the same behavior, they may see it as normal or natural or okay. And then the same behavior from the female's perspective is this is a violation. This makes me uncomfortable. This or the other. And then if that doesn't work, um, there's a, a few things that you could do as maybe um, things to distance yourself, maybe physically distance yourself, maybe power plays, uh, maybe um, based upon uh, your facial expressions, things like that. So to get the point across, hey, um, this isn't welcome and what you're doing is wrong and offensive and to communicate that clearly as well. So one example of that is if um, non-verbally, if you make eye contact with someone, politely, you break your eye contact down. That shows politeness, building rapport. But if you make eye contact with someone and you break the eye contact up and you look at their forehead, that's a power play. That suggests that you're trying to take more control back or more power over the other person. So maybe the woman could do that when those types of behaviors tend to occur, or maybe uh, take a step closer and invade their personal space and see if that helps to uh, reduce some of the harassment as well. So bring their attention to it and then maybe do power plays if that doesn't work. If you're, if it's those subtle types of behaviors that um, aren't as explicit to go straight to the HR with, you know, is sex hormones, does that is is this a, the foundational basis of why there's so much cheating? I've done this I've done this podcast for you know seven years, and I know that people want to know some of the salacious stuff. We get into our high academia in these type conversations, which I love. But let's talk a little bit about why people cheat. There's been a uh, study done. And I cite it in my book, but again, not to uh, make broad generalizations about everyone, but for males with the height uh, ratio of their face, the uh, more that there's uh, uh, of a width to the height of their face, they're more likely to cheat. So why is it? That's shaped by uh, higher levels of uh, pre-birth testosterone levels. And testosterone, these androgens are highly associated with um, sex drive and um, uh, sexual desire. So um, there's a different uh, frame of thought out there. It's somewhat disputed. Um, that does is testosterone um, responsible for sex drive for everyone, both males and females. And uh, males have 20 times as much, and that's why they have a higher sex drive. Or there's another frame of thought in I and uh, that um, testosterone is related to sex drive and is converted to estrogen for females. And that leads to some of their uh, sex drive as well. Um, I tend to go a little bit more on the side that estrogen plays uh, a larger role on its own for females. 
um, as opposed to just testosterone itself. So I think testosterone plays a large role with sex drive and maybe more likely to cheat and males have 20 times as much more. Um, so that may uh, play into it, but there is a difference. I have a whole chapter on um, should we date procreate is what it's called in relationships and data and stuff like that. Um, and with that, uh, it goes into uh, the different uh, sexual desire differences between males and females. Males, it's much easier to get sexually aroused uh, based upon maybe just simple uh, visual stimuli for males and uh, testosterone levels. And they do it on its own. <laughs> Pretty simplistic creatures, I guess we are. Whereas with females, yeah. there's much more that needs to be uh, conditions taken into consideration. It's much more psychological. She needs to feel uh, uh, comfortable, uh, relaxed. She can't have stress. The relationship really needs to be valued with the other person. And then again, estrogen levels come into play as well, where it's more of a you uh, shaped estrogen levels, not too high, not too low. So you can see how menopause could come into play and that could throw a wrench into it as well. But it's that psychological factors that come into play for uh, the sex drive for females. So two people meet for the first time, it's much more likely that the male will be sexually aroused than what the female is because there's many more conditions and much more psychological conditions to be met for the female to be sexually aroused. Wow. Well, this is fascinating. I mean, if you think about everything from, you know, how we communicate as individuals to the value of orgasm and a relationship, everything really goes back to, you know, our sex hormones and our makeup. You know, when you first meet someone and you want to sort of observe whether or not this person is high testosterone, low estrogen, high estrogen, et cetera because you've been paying attention to this conversation, you go, okay, I don't necessarily want to fight with a high testosterone type of guy. I don't mm -hmm. really want to date that type of person. How can I tell if someone, you know, without getting out a tape measure and uh -huh. just sort of measuring their face uh, ratio? <laughs> uh, another thing that you can measure is, uh, is, you know, I'm just throwing this out here, sort of just humorous, but uh, their finger ratio, 2D to 4D, so their index finger, what's the ratio of that with their ring finger? And if the ring finger is much longer, that means that they have uh, they were exposed to much higher levels of testosterone prior to birth. And that leads to all these other types of factors as well. Um, it has been uh, found that um, uh, those people who uh, have autism have a much uh, longer uh, ring finger than index finger. So uh, their fourth finger is much longer than their uh, second one. And what's associated with um, autism is higher levels of testosterone and lower levels uh, or lower abilities of social behaviors, social understanding. So testosterone levels can somewhat be understood by how socially understanding is the other person? How well do they empathize with someone else? What types of behaviors? How are their language abilities? And one cue that could uh, uh, give you insight into how well do they empathize or understand someone else, and hence their testosterone levels is, how much do they mimic other people's behaviors? So if you're standing around in a group of people of five, 
four people have similar types of nonverbal behaviors, one person doesn't, that probably indicates that that person doesn't have as much empathy as other people, and they probably have much higher levels of testosterone. And it has even wow. been found that wow. those people who don't uh, mimic or emulate other people's behaviors nearly as much, they tend to have much uh, or more prone to psychological disorders, such as those extremes even of those people who are uh, high criminals, um, which makes sense. How can you do criminal behaviors on someone else if you empathize and feel their pain? So if you don't empathize and feel their pain, um, it's easier to do criminal types of behavior. So uh, look around. How much does and that's an indication of relationship quality? How much do both people emulate or mimic um, each other's behaviors? It's much easier for a female to adapt her behaviors and mimic her partner's behaviors than it is for a male to adapt uh, his behaviors to the females uh, because females uh, empathize much easier with um, other people. And there's uh, different biological uh, be, uh, explanations beyond just estrogen uh, levels, such as the insula, the insula uh, inside the brain. Um, it has more gray matter and more activation for females. And what that does is it takes in more sensory information for the female to analyze about the environment and other people. That's one of the reasons that brings into that women's intuition. So they're sort of like detectives. They can yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> detect all these different nuances that we just don't pick up on. Yeah, you speak about that in your book, you around the sixth sense. Yes. You, know, you, you unpack that a bit, which is what I've really enjoyed about reading your book is that a lot of the sort of ideas and thoughts that get sort of passed down in old wives' tales, you really share and unpack the science of it. I want to I just, as we move towards a close, I want to talk a little bit about the need to signal. You know, one of my favorite authors, researchers, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Miller, who wrote The Mating Mind, you know, speaks a lot about signaling. And I am completely fascinated. And I'm sure there are people listening going, why is it that my partner who's happily married or happily happy in a relationship with me, why do they see the need to signal, to show their, to show themselves, to show their sexual assets um, on Instagram, for example, or to always see to be flashing things, you know, you know, they're, they're, you know, flashing themselves in a way to seem to want to attract the opposite person when they say they're happy. Could you explain that a little bit? I have a chapter in my book that's uh, titled uh, She Demands, He Withdraws. And that has been a dynamic of relationship conflict has been recognized in our field of communication studies for decades. And what that goes into is that both people within that relationship feel that they're not being valued or appreciated, but for different reasons. So I'll throw this out here just because it's a good example. In its present day, I haven't been keeping that closely tracked to it, but I think it uh, helps to give a good example of it. So the Johnny Depp and the Amber Heard uh, saga yes. that's going on in court, that yep. is a prime example of she demands and he withdraws. So there's even um, instances of they're having a conflict. He just leaves the house. And then she runs down the street chasing after him in her nightgown. 
Um, she does uh, certain types of things that cries out for his attention. And what's he do? He just shuts down. He does substance abuse with the drugs and the alcohol. So we heard about different other types of things, maybe throwing something at him to get his attention or um, other types of uh, harmful types of behaviors. So from that perspective, she sees him, Johnny Depp, as not meet, meeting her emotional needs. And she's crying out for attention that, hey, you need to, I have a lot invested in this, which women do much more so emotionally in the relationship. And you're not showing that you appreciate it. Anytime something gets, uh, things conflict or something gets tough, you just run off or you just go into substance abuse or whatever else. He feels you don't appreciate what I do. So it's not that I have to say something to express my emotions, but what I actually do for you, uh, maybe provide a house, uh, take you out to eat, spend time with you is an expression of emotion for us, but she doesn't want just spend time with her, but, uh, emotional displays between both of them. So uh, some of the uh, things to keep in mind is it's, uh, it, it's much more difficult for males to process relationship types of information to, in a relationship. And again, overall, we tend to be inferior uh, language wise. So uh, based upon testosterone levels, things like that. So we're going to express our emotions uh, differently between each other, and uh, it's not going to be picked up or recognized by each person. So some of the things that could have helped that relationship is uh, it's been found in relationships that if you hold hands prior to a conflict, that's more positive types of communication behaviors occur afterwards. So why is it? Touch is related with oxytocin levels that increases levels of oxytocin, and that uh, increases that relationship bonding. And it also uh, activates similar areas of the brain, so it's more empathy. And then also if you mimic uh, each other's and synchronize each other's types of nonverbal behaviors, that, again, helps you understand the other person better, activates similar areas of the brain. So what that dynamic and that, uh, uh, of that relationship comes down to is both of them felt that they contributed to the relationship and that uh, neither of the other person valued what they contribute. But what was happening was the other person didn't understand what the investment was from the other person. Her emotionally and language-wise, she contributed, and he was much more of what he did action-wise. That's what he contributed. And then when each person uh, didn't feel valued, the whole thing just blows up and it makes it even worse. She demanded even more emotionally from him. I mean, he just withdrew even more so, and males are more likely to do substance abuse and just shut down um, when they feel like what they do is not being um, appreciated. Wow. Is there an ideal sort of estrogen testosterone makeup that makes for the ideal partner? <laughs> I think so. For females, it's more of that uh, inverted U, so it's more of a not too high and not too low. And that helps with the uh, sexual intimacy for her sexual drive and also for an emotional type of uh, balance. And for males, it's much, uh, it's more of a higher end of testosterone. And the higher end of testosterone helps with uh, the sexual desire as well as those other things that uh, females tend to uh, value in males as well, such as uh, the muscle, the strength, um, being more of a protector, 
uh, those types of things, and appearing much more uh, physically fit as well because testosterone is related with the muscle types of mass. Well, so I would say higher of testosterone for males and yeah. uh, more of a middle level of estrogen for females. And when you are swiping on Tinder or one of these apps, maybe we should slow down the swiping and pay a little bit more attention to what? Maybe what they have to say and maybe read into uh, their pictures as well. So what do they do? What are the hobbies? What are their interests? And um, I look at it as different layers. So the number or the number or the number one thing or the top thing that keeps relationships together is having that core, those fundamentals that are similar to each other, maybe religious, maybe beliefs, values. And then those secondary and third types of issues are uh, the hobbies and interests. And then also uh, one of the things that you want to keep in mind is uh, these biological factors that really influence uh, mate attraction, such as chemo signals that females tend to sniff out their mates. Okay. So it's important to them to sniff out someone who had different biological DNA from them because that reduces uh, the likelihood of having an offspring with um, detrimental effects. So everyone has biological uh, uh, detriments to them, uh, less desirable types of traits. But most of the time with most people, these are recessive. So these are on our recessive types of genes. So what females want to do is find or sniff out someone who has genes that are dissimilar to them so that you don't have a higher probability to have similar types of recessive types of genes. So everything may be yeah. great with the way that they look or uh, what, what they say, but then when you meet, uh, just doesn't click. Maybe that's part of it. That reminds me of that dating study where men wore T-shirts without fragrance or cologne, just body odor, and women chose the T-shirt uh, that they smelled, that they connected to, and relationships showed a higher chance of uh, connection and survival. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. You know, I think that the reason why everyone should get this book is that people don't teach this stuff. We're not taught this at an early age. We're not taught to look for differences, similarities, and, and understand how that could help. I mean, a lot, I feel like the world has gone through, we, we tend to rely on personality tests more than bio, biology. And I think people who are speaking a lot about biology are standing the risk of getting canceled. I mean, if you look at, you know, mm -hmm. the Jordan Petersons and all these yeah. sort of people of the world, you know, they're on the firing line. And anybody speaking about biology, why are you so confident? Why are you putting yourself out there like this in an age and an era where, you know, the, the, the activists are saying that this is about sociology, it's not about biology? Why are you so confident? I think the evidence is on my side. So throughout my book, I have over 700 different articles that are cited that comes from uh, communication, neuroscience, biology, and it all comes together, the pieces of the puzzle. That's what it is. I just put the different pieces of the puzzle together and it comes up with the same consistent themes over and over. So it's recognized uh, communicatively, maybe socially, there are differences between males and females. And now here are some of the biological uh, reasons why that help to explain it. If uh, I try, I try to use the metaphor that um, 
no matter how much I could just speak for myself, how much training I had done, I had a 0% chance of being an Olympic sprinter because my biological parts were not in place. I could learn to run faster, but I would never have that ability because the biology wasn't there. So why can't the same thing be uh, with biological sex and our social abilities? Uh, one of the things that you brought up and that happens to be my favorite chapter is, I think it's chapter 12, uh, Women's Sixth Sense, and how every different sense, all five of them, women are superior than what males are, more sensitive to touch. They can hear a larger range of sounds. Uh, they have better taste, a uh, larger range of taste, uh, better sense of smell. And then sight, uh, color vision is on the X chromosome. And uh, females are consistently found to have uh, better color vision than what males do from being on the X chromosome and also having more P cells in the retina, which is for color and detail. So we could look at the exact same thing and they're going to see something different than what we are just visually. So you can see how that alters our perception. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for me, learning to appreciate the differences instead of trying to Yes. Remove the differences and honoring them. And also at the same time, I think that for hundreds and thousands of years, men have sort of abused our position in many ways. It doesn't mean that we should, women should try to be men. And it right. doesn't mean that men should try to emasculate themselves or we should be trying to emasculate. There is a responsible way to find that happy medium, yes. that line down the road, right? And I think this type of book, this type of work, is a really wonderful starting point. Dr. Stephen Furlick, thank you very much for joining us on The Brain and Branch Show. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much for listening. I purchased Dr. Furlick's book on Kindle, and I'm loving it. Finding all sorts of practical tools and insights that are helping me connect with both women and men. I highly recommend you get this book right away. Thank you, Dr. Furlick, for making time. Please rate this show and then share with someone you care about. Until next time.